This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. In the body of Christ, especially in a place like Ellerslie, where we have a mixed body of every denominational persuasion imaginable that would be Bible-believing. We believe what it says in the Bible, and therefore we have to grapple with it, because we're Bible-believing Christians, and which is what gives us the moniker of conservative. Conservatism is not necessarily what saves you, by the way, just in case you're wondering. You vote Republican, that doesn't mean you go to heaven. You have a conservative view of Scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean you have the full spirit of what the scriptures are saying just because you believe it is accurate. Because many of us know the Bible is accurate, but we have a very difficult time employing the very realities of those scriptures into our life. And so though we may think conservative thoughts, our lives live very opposite of what we believe. Take the Pharisees, for instance. They were the conservatives in their day, and they killed Jesus. They're missing something. You could be pharisaical and have all the knowledge and have the right conclusions. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, by the way. The fact that they believe something, then they actually get guards to stand guard around the tomb, lest he be resurrected. The great ironies. So let's not be Christians that believe in the integrity of Scripture and believe that those words are accurate, but somehow miss what they're about. Now, when you get to a topic like this, I'm, I can only imagine what could be going through some of your minds uh, this morning is how in the world is Eric going to navigate his way through this without splintering the body even in a greater degree in our generation? One of the things that you'll always know is that when Eric gets up to give a message, my desire is to show Jesus Christ. Now, how in the world Jesus Christ could come out of such a disputable topic as this remains to be seen, doesn't it? And yet... I would say the whole point of this is to show Jesus. If you speak in tongues but are not showcasing Jesus Christ in your life, fooey on you. <laughs> What's the good of it? In other words, who cares if you have this gibberish coming out of your mouth if your life isn't giving a clear message of the person of Jesus Christ? I, you take your tongue. I want a clear message of Jesus Christ. You follow me? And yet, for those of you that have rejected tongues and yet live this conservative in this conservative bastion of, you know, uh, figuring it all out and saying it all ceased, there is no more power in the church, we all have, we have the 66 books of scripture, that's all we lean on, you have no life and power to live this Christian Christianity out. It's simply put, that one of the things you'll also pick up on and hang around Ellerslie is we are not cessationists. In the classical sense, when you come to 1 Corinthians 13, because we're going to hang out in 1 Corinthians 14 today, there's a key line, and it says, uh, you know, that these things will cease, speaking of tongues, for instance, and as a result, when the perfect comes, this will be no more. And so then there's a debate in the church of Jesus Christ on if the perfect has come. Well, what's the perfect? And so some people say, well, it's the 66 books of the Bible. That's the perfect. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it's not perfect, however... I don't necessarily believe that's what it's talking about when the perfect comes. And so as a result, even though it's hard for me to have to say, I don't believe that what the early church had is gone. It's hard for me to say that. You know why? Because then I have to acknowledge that it may still be around. And the moment I have to acknowledge that it may still be around, I have to deal with something like this. And I would prefer just to act like it doesn't exist. Because to lead the body of Christ today... You bring up the issues of tongues and prophecy, spiritual gifts of any kind, and you splinter a body. There are entire denominations that have settled off in a corner on their own over this issue. There are other denominations that spend a great deal of their time criticizing the other denominations that would dare believe that they could actually still speak in tongues and prophesy. And as a result, we've spent an undue amount of time in the body of Christ splintering instead of seeing Jesus. The whole point of this is to showcase Jesus. 
So I am going to go into territory that some may consider unwise. However, I would say I think you will find that this issue doesn't need to divide us. And that doesn't mean I'm going to try and convince you to speak in tongues and say, say repeat after me. <laughs> However, I am going to begin to introduce you to what I would say is the real meaning of this. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians, the great irony of this, is not about tongues and speaking in tongues. The great agenda of 1 Corinthians is not to get you to speak in tongues, even though that is the number one basis that people that do speak in tongues will use to leverage and to back what they believe. The church at Corinth was in disorder. It was a mess. And Paul is giving a rebuke for how they were doing it, for what they were doing in the first place. This is a corrective book. 1 Corinthians 14 is not saying, yes, please. It's saying, okay, guys, let's get something straight. Let's bring this back to what it's all about. Remember what is right before 1 Corinthians 14, which is where we're going to hang out on tongues and prophecy? It's something called 1 Corinthians 13, which many of us have memorized, ironically. We know 1 Corinthians 13. We skip over 1 Corinthians 14. You know, some of the most disputable passages in all of Christianity are in 1 Corinthians. Ironically, most of us defend our doctrinal positions out of 1 Corinthians. And yet, we have to remember, 1 Corinthians is literally Paul coming in and saying, Hey guys, you got this out of order. Hey guys, clean this up. Hey guys, let's do this right. And yet, most of us are taking Paul's correction and starting to use it and say, Yeah, this is why I do what I do. Well, Paul was correcting that. In the very same passage... We are backing our behavior. And so we have chaos in Corinth. And in comes the letter of 1 Corinthians. Craving the second sound. Aren't you fascinated with that uh, title? An audacious study in tongues and prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I originally had the entire chapter in here. And I really wish I had more time to just go through. I just do not have enough time to go through and dissect every, every scripture in it, even though it would be a wonderful uh, way to do it. Who knows? Maybe this will be a five-part study. <laughs> but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Okay, church at Corinth, so you have your tongues. If you do not give a distinct sound, something that is understandable, what good is it? Follow me, that's actually the context of this whole thing. Hey, guys, is this discernible? Is anyone understanding what you're saying? You're over here making your noises. Praise God. However, no one understands it. No one is being edified. No one is being built up by it. That was the misuse in Corinth. Mysterious tears. So if you were here last night, uh, something very, very special was taking place in me. That whatever I witnessed on this stage was just so profound to my heart. And I had to get up, and I think... Nathan had said something like, and so you just need to get up and say something wise at the end. I'm like, great. Uh, and so I was back there. My body was shaking. I, was, I had tears streaming down my face. I'm thinking, how in the world am I supposed to get up and talk right now? And so I make my way up, and I got to the front, and I didn't talk. I made some gurgling sounds, some wheezes. Uh, I don't know what other noises came, grunts, groans. I just, it wasn't talking. Okay, now if I had stopped after that, after I, it was a long time too. If I had uh, stopped, and by the way, thank you, uh, Mama Kwan, for uh, the, uh, the Kleenex. That was very nice of you. Very symbolic of the whole semester, wasn't it? But if I had left the stage at that exact point in time, I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been beautiful. It wouldn't have been a movement of the Holy Spirit. It wouldn't have been a testimony that God was in our midst. But it wouldn't have been discernible, and you wouldn't have understood what was going on inside of me. So though God moves upon our life, and though it is a very genuine move of God's grace and His Spirit, there is a need to actually bring interpretation 
and bring clarification of what is taking place. In that little illustration, which God gave me, because when I was doing my prayer walk this morning, I was pondering that. I was like, there it is, right there. That's exactly what this entire message is about. And I'd already had the message done before that happened last night. But there's two sounds. There is the initial sound of the movement of grace, which oftentimes moves us into what we could call gibberish moans and groans. It is a very real movement of grace upon our life. We're being changed. It's the invasion of God Almighty, a foreign power, into this foreign territory. He is changing it. He is altering it. He speaks a different language. We are unholy. He is holy. He is pure. We are impure. That which is other is coming in. And when it comes in, we don't quite know what to do with it. And then, as it begins to settle, the work of grace upon us is to take that mystery and articulate it. And what begins to come out of our life is a confession, a confession of sin, a confession of faith, an articulation of the gospel that was there and now is here. God's great work is not the first sound. It's the second sound. We crave the second sound. The two sounds in the body of Christ... Now, you have to realize, when I talk about the body of Christ, I could be talking about the actual body of Christ that hung upon a cross. And yet, we also know that the great mystery in the New Testament is that we are that body. That when we believe, we enter into that body, and we are now where he is. So when he dies, we're dying. When he's buried, we're buried. When he rises, we rise. When he ascends, we ascend. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ. So there's two sounds within the body of Christ. The first sound is what in 1 Corinthians 14 would be understood as tongues. Don't get intimidated by this. I've, I've really struggled with this because I've seen the abuse of it in the church and to the point where I actually asked God to please uh, make me a cessationist. Please somehow give me the relief of soul so I could get out, get away from these passages of Scripture and somehow justify them. Because all I'd seen is their abuse. And when all you've seen is an abuse, you really don't want to go back and hang out with them. And yet, here I stand before you saying, God, I trust you. I trust that you know what you're doing, and I also trust that that is, in fact, the word of God. And since in good conscience I can't declare that anything has changed since the New Testament church started, and that which started it is still needed today to keep it going until you return then I have to grapple with this. So the first sound is tongues. It's a hidden, uncertain, indiscernible spiritual mystery. That's why it's called a tongue. You don't know what it means. It is of a different order. It's a different nature. It's a different language. It's a different sentence structure. You don't recognize it. It is a tongue. It is a first sound. A second sound is what in 1 Corinthians 14 is called an interpretation or a prophecy. Please, I, I know. I can only imagine if I'm sitting in your seat, I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I came to church. I wanted to be built up, encouraged, strengthened. This isn't going to do it. I know. Some of you are actually like, finally, Eric's gotten to the topic. I've been hanging out here for years, and now he finally is going to address it. Get him, Ludi. <laughs> the second sound is the interpretation of prophecy. It's an intelligible, certain, understood enunciation of truth. In other words, you understand. The whole key of the second sound is that you get it. You know what is being said to you. The two sounds of Scripture. You know that Scripture has two sounds in it? You know that everything I'm about to share with you that is hidden in 1 Corinthians 14 is demonstrated throughout the entire Bible? I know. Shocker. Everything. In fact, that is our interpretive tool. You want to understand these sounds in 1 Corinthians 14? You better understand the whole Bible. Well, there's two sounds in Scripture. The first sound, the Old Covenant. It's a hidden, uncertain, indiscernible spiritual mystery. It's a locked gate. We can't get in. I I don't know if you've studied uh, the Old Testament, but the Jews did not understand it. I mean, they understood it to a degree. So they're like, okay, I, I hear the words you're saying, but I don't get it. Remember Jesus when he came and he was given his parables? They didn't get it. You see, something was needed to unlock the gate. And there you have the first sound. Where did it come from? The Holy Spirit moved these authors. And they wrote. They spoke. It's from God. But it's not discernible. It is a first sound. 
The second sound, we'll call it the new covenant, an intelligible, certain, understood enunciation of truth. Welcome to the book of Romans. The difference between Romans and the Old Testament is very different. The book of Hebrews, as opposed to the Old Testament, it's actually bringing interpretation to everything in the Old. Every, the four Gospels are literally the key saying, wasn't it written? He fulfilled. Do you see it? It's called the good news. It's the unlocked gate. It's the second sound. So it's the key that unlocks the gate. Very simply put, and I don't want to steal my thunder, his name is Jesus. <laughs> the effect of the two sounds. The first sound, it is inspired of God, but it cannot save. The first sound, many of us would understand it as the law, the prophets. In and of themselves, they cannot save, but they point to the one. They're a road sign to the one who can. They are a sign to the unbeliever. They actually show what is ahead. But what you believe in is not them. You believe in what it points to. It's called faith. It is inspired of God, but cannot save. It is merely a schoolmaster to prepare one for the second. And only makes sense when the second sound comes. What's the good of this first sound? You know how many people in the church today want the first sound? Like, hey, how come we don't have the first sound anymore? Hey, I say, let's crave the second sound. I'm not against the first sound, but I definitely want the second. We should be craving the clear message, not the unclear one. The second sound. It too is inspired of God and it has the power of God into salvation woven into it. It inspires faith and opens the believing soul up to the rescuing power of grace. The second sound, and by the way, this isn't just my opinion. This is the Bible's opinion. Paul very specifically, even in 1 Corinthians 14 of all places, says the second sound is wholly superior. It's the second sound that we should crave. By the way, that's what 1 Corinthians 14 is about. Hey, people, I realize you have the first sound. Yay. But you don't have the second sound. And that's what matters. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 14. So why the second sound? So that the unbeliever might see and understand the revelation. He actually uses the statement that if all of us are speaking in gibberish or in tongues, when someone comes into our meeting, will they not think we're mad? However, when someone brings an interpretation, when someone brings a prophecy, they speak clearly. And as a result, the unbeliever can hear and believe and fall down and praise God. 1 Corinthians 14. It's the second sound that is superior. So that the believer might grow in their comprehension of the revelation. So, God moves upon you. He's teaching you. He's instructing you. So what needs to come out? Not just a tongue. That doesn't edify. That doesn't give anything to the body. The whole reason you've been moved upon by God is not so you can cry in front of an audience, but so that you can articulate, you can put to words, so that you can build up those around you. You see, God has given us the mysterious tears. He's given us the mysterious groan. He has moved upon our lives, but that is meant to come forth in an articulate form so that it can build and instruct the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14. The book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, I, I know we all love it. I mean, we're conservative Christians, so it's like, yay, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, I have another message which calls it the pastor's dilemma. How to deal with 1 Corinthians. Every doctrinal dispute is found there. It's like if we could just surgically remove 1 Corinthians from the Bible, we could avoid a lot of issues. That's how a pastor could think. Or we could just hit it straight on and say, this is God's word. God, teach me. Though I want to avoid that, and that, and that, that. I mean, by the way, just if you want a, a good uh, lesson on what to avoid, 1 Corinthians 11 through 1 Corinthians 12. 13 is wonderful, but the second half really creates some problems. And then 1 Corinthians 14. If we could just lift that out and just leave love right there, hanging in the midst. It's like, ah, oh, how wonderful. The book of 1 Corinthians. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. Hey, church, yes, you do have liberty. They, you see, they had liberty. We have liberty in Christ. We're free to do whatever we want. So they were eating food sacrificed to idols, causing their brothers to stumble. They were, uh, you know, in bad straits sexually. 
they uh, were whipping off head coverings in a culture that basically if a woman did not have a head covering, she was a prostitute. Uh, hey, ladies, this isn't actually coming across very well. You want to show love to those around you, love to your husbands, love to your church body? You might want to think these things through. This is Paul's message. Yeah, hey, church, yes, you do have liberty, but you must leverage that liberty lovingly. You see, God has given you this spirit so that you can love with this freedom. So everything you do loves. 1 Corinthians 13 is the climactic point of Paul's argument. Paul is building up saying, hey, people, you want to know the more excellent way? Start loving. You see, you have this gift of grace, but it must be exercised with love. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So the whole book is Paul basically saying, we need to leverage this liberty lovingly. 1 Corinthians 14, I'll give you a very specific enunciation. Hey, church, yes, you do have special gifts given to you by the Holy Spirit. But you must understand that these gifts were given to build up the body of Christ and not splinter it into pieces. Isn't that ironic? The very thing that's happened with those gifts today is it splinters us. But Paul's saying, hey guys, this is meant to build. This is meant to construct us as stronger. These precious gifts were entrusted to you to make stronger the body, to bring order unto the body, and to make the body more effective. Is this how you are using them? That's Paul's question. Hey, guys, is this so with you? Is this what you're doing? Are you building each other up? Remember, communion is right before this, uh, before, you know, in the, the head coverings, then we have communion, people getting sick and dying because of how they're handling it. It's like they're misusing the sacred things. Yes, they have something sacred, but they're not treating it the way God has asked them to treat it. Hey, guys, you want to know why you're a mess? I'm going to tell you. Sure, sure, yes, you have these gifts of grace, but you're abusing them. You're misusing them. There's chaos in your midst. First the foreign tongue and then the spirit's interpretation. So this is the pattern we have. Do you know that the Old Testament is written in a tongue that you wouldn't understand? Mm -hmm. Now, you could study it today, but back in the day, you're either Hebrew or you're not. And if you're not, you actually do not have the oracles of God. You do not know what God is saying to the people of this earth. You're a Gentile. You're outside the pale of commonwealth. The commonwealth of Israel is what it's called. It's the wealth that was common to all those that were a part of Israel. We were cut off. We're Gentiles. It's a foreign tongue. And yet that foreign tongue has been interpreted. You know that before Jesus came, there's this mighty events taking place in the world from Alexander the Great and the conquest of the earth and then the actual Hellenization, which brought a common language for the first time to the earth, at least since Babel. And it was called the Koine Greek. And so this one language has permeated the culture. And then it is an edict written. And there's, what, 70-some scholars, Jewish rabbis that actually write the ancient Hebrew text for the first time in all of history in the Koine Greek. So that when Jesus comes, everyone can see the match. Everyone. You see, first it was a foreign tongue, the first sound. But which sound is greater? I'm voting for the second sound, the clear sound, the one that we can believe in. The first, the second, a study in mystery. So the word in the uh, New Testament is called mysterion, to shut the mouth, maintain a secret, a mystery, something hidden, a secret counsel. It's interesting because Paul refers to this word quite often. He says, I'm here to explain to you the mystery. Basically, Paul's saying, look, I'm an interpreter. I'm here to actually make clear what has always been hidden. I'm giving you a second sound, is what Paul is saying. He's a second sound guy. Big fan of it. And so we have the concept of musterion. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, says Paul, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. There has now been a revelation an answer, a second sound has finally come. The prophecy, or we could call it the interpretation, has actually come to a people. It's called the gospel, the good news. What's it wrapped up in? That key that I mentioned earlier, the person of Jesus Christ. We preach the word. You ever thought about what that means? Most of us think it's talking about just the scriptures. Well, it is, but the word is Jesus. We preach Jesus. 
That's the answer right there. In the most simple sense, that interprets everything. The entire Bible actually makes sense. The whole mystery is uncorked, unraveled. We actually know what it means. Oh, so that's what he's talking about. That's right. Jesus. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. As I wrote a four and few words whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So we have the Old Testament, which is the first sound, is what I would liken it to. It is a foreign tongue. It is an unknown tongue. And it needs an interpreter. It's begging an interpreter. God, the entire model of the New Testament is based on this premise. Don't get up and give more garbly gook. We don't need any more mystery. What we need is clarity. What we need is something that people can believe in and understand. We need rock beneath our feet. So let's have some prophecy. Now, when I say prophecy, some of your minds go wild too. I should probably take a little moment. Here's what I'm going to do in the most simple sense. Because I'm not saying that prophecy can't be more than this. But in the most simple sense, it's a clear word of God given to the body of Christ to edify and make stronger the body. Is that safe? Okay, because I know some of you are like, hey, Eric, could we talk about future things and, uh, and projections of what's to come? You can talk about that. I'm not talking about that today. I want to keep it very simple so that we do not stumble over something that has actually been disputable for generations and generations. What I want to say is what is clear in 1 Corinthians 14 in Paul's use of the word is that it is that which is given by God to the church to bring clarity and interpretation and order so that we would understand what God is wanting as opposed to bring more confusion. God is not the author of confusion. You know where that comes from? 1 Corinthians 14. (laughs) Jesus, the most basic tool for rightly handling the word. Everything in scripture pertains to Christ. He is the key to unlock the mystery. So everything in Scripture pertains to Christ. Everything. Now, if you go through Ellerslie, you become convinced of that. I don't know how many weeks in it it, it takes. But at first, it's sort of with an incredulity. It's like, everything? You've got to be kidding. How about Leviticus? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Song of Solomon? Uh Uh-huh. No matter what you do, no matter where you turn, it's like, whoa, that's our Messiah. There he is. This all points to him. So the key you need to unlock it is what's called the second sound. It's the prophecy. It is the fulfillment. It is the interpretation. You call it what you want. Call him the Messiah. We could just call him Jesus. But the second sound is a person. It is the enunciation of the word of God made flesh. That is what unlocks the first sound. The first sound only has value in that it leads us to the second. If the first sound doesn't lead you to the second, it has absolutely no worth. Its only purpose is to show you the second. Search the scriptures, says Jesus. For in them you think you have eternal life. You think you have it in the first sound, guys. And they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. Who had the first sound? The Jews. They were running around speaking in tongues, saying, we have it, guys. You don't. But they didn't have the interpretation. They didn't have Jesus. You could have the first sound, but if you reject the second sound, you've lost everything. Then opened he their understanding, Jesus did, that they might understand the scriptures. Who opens their understanding? A resurrected King Jesus. When you understand the death, burial, resurrection of this one known as Jesus Christ, it actually unlocks And beginning at Moses, which is the first five books, so we're going all the way back to the beginning, and all the prophets he expounded, who expounded? Jesus. Unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You see, they couldn't see it until then. You see, even the gospels, if you want to say it, are a parable. They're part of the mystery, the mysterion. They don't quite see it. It's still part of the first sound. 
But when Jesus dies and is resurrected, now we suddenly have something unlocked. The powers of darkness are devastated. The kingdom of light has come. And now understanding can come. And this mystery that has been hid for ages and generations is now revealed. And we can see it. It's him. He has done it. He fulfilled it all. It all spoke of him. He's accomplished everything. And when we believe in him, we are saved. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. Well, Jesus, are you saying that Moses wrote about you? I don't remember ever hearing the word Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, actually, the Hebrew is Yeshua, which is the name Joshua. So technically, Moses said it a lot. (laughs) However, all throughout Moses' writings, you see Jesus. All throughout it. That's one of my favorite things to teach, too. The book of Genesis. Who would expect to see Jesus in the book of Genesis? Yet, he's everywhere. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures. Isn't that funny? I mean, that's in the book of Romans. Good conservative Romans. I mean, 1 Corinthians is a little odd, a little liberal. But Romans, come on! In Romans, it's known as the prophetic scriptures. Why? It's the scriptures that point. It's the scriptures that reveal. It's the scriptures that show Jesus Christ. Made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. It's the finish of Romans. The two sounds of the word. So when I say word, logos in the Greek, it could mean text of scripture, and that would be perfectly valid if you said, oh yeah, that's the text of scripture. Yes, but it could also mean the person of scripture. The word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So the two sounds of the word. The first sound is the word of God in text. And we'll call that a treasure map. As far as a metaphor for us, it's a treasure map. Is it valuable? Is it given by God? Has he laid out a pattern of... But what's he pointing to in the treasure map? A treasure. This little X that marks a spot. So if you're looking at a treasure map and you take the treasure map, sit it in your pocket, say, I have the treasure map, God. I'm fine. The first sound beckons the second sound. What does the first sound do? It shows you the treasure. And then it says, go get it. You'll know him when he comes. Why? Because he's given you this before he came. So that when he comes, you would believe. When you come to the treasure, you'll know that is the treasure because it matches perfectly with the first sound. It's a translation. It's an interpretation of that which was given first. So the second sound is the word of God in person. We'll call him the treasure. That's what it all points to. So how many of us hang on to the scriptures and think we're saved just by having text, memorizing it, repeating it to ourselves? But the only value of the first sound is to lead us to the second. It's to lead us to the person of Jesus Christ. You're not saved by the knowledge of scripture. You're saved by the person of scripture. Salvation is in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. The interpreter. The key to unlock the mystery, the unknown tongue. Jesus is that interpreter. Now you could also say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? You better believe it. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to see Jesus, who's the interpreter. So yes, they work in tandem. And you could say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together, first sound and second. You see, they're the origins of both and the results of all. The key to unlock the mystery, the unknown tongue. So I'm going to go through just a few little samples in the Old Testament just to give you an idea of how this works. I'll try and make this simple. I actually had quite a few more pages that I lopped off. It was really hard for me this morning to lop these off, but I was thinking about you guys. (laughs) So Cain and Abel, first, second. Which offering does God receive? The second. You see, there's always a first and there's a second throughout Scripture. When you start to notice that, you're like, whoa, yeah. Oh, it's everywhere. That's right. You see, all of these things that we're talking about this morning are everywhere. First sound, second sound. First man, second man. Jesus is known as the second man. There's a lot of other men that came before him. He's like 77 generations after Adam. What do you mean the second? He's the last Adam, the second Adam. There was a priest in the Garden of Eden that failed. And now there's a priest that has come. And Adam has come to do what that Adam should have done, laid down his life for his bride. The two offerings, Cain and Abel. So we have sweat and blood. Both of them are laboring hard. 
You know, you got this guy, you know, Cain, who's working the fields, and he has this great offering that he brings. And then you have Abel, who's a shepherd. He's tending to the flock. So sweat and blood. So Cain offers his offering. It's the fruit of man's labor. It's not accepted. You see, when we labor, that is not accepted. A lot of people think that God is, you know, somewhat harsh in the fact that he's always choosing the second. It's like, what? how come he doesn't receive the first? God is making a point all throughout Scripture that he receives the offering of the second. Who is the second? His name is Jesus. He does not receive the offering of Adam. He receives the offering of Jesus. That is the point being made all throughout Scripture. It's the second sound that is worthy. It's the second sound that triumphs. The first sound only leads us to the understanding of the value of the second sound. So then Abel offers his. But what's his? His offering is the life of the firstling of the flock. It's the life, it's the sweat and blood of a a lamb. Isn't that an amazing thought? And that's the one that God receives. Right in the very beginning, in the fabric of how God speaks, he chooses the second. No, I don't accept that. I choose the second. What? God. Poor Cain. You see, he can't accept your first life either. You have to be born again. You have to become a second. Until you are born into Christ, into the second, you are under the condemnation of Adam the first. This is a mystery. Yes, it is. When you look at it in the Bible, and I can't tell you how many people stumble over this. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's like, oh, the poor guy. The first he hates, the second he loves. You have to realize he hates sin. He hates self-effort. He hates self-righteousness. He loves that which esteems the promise. It's that simple. That's what he's saying. All throughout Scripture, he's saying the same thing over and over again. This is a mystery, a mystery, mind you, that is solved in Jesus Christ. The sweat and blood of God's labor is the only thing that will satisfy God. The sweat and the blood of God's labor. Knowing this, so I'm taking Galatians 2.16. I'm going to put in this concept into this, okay? So where it's in parentheses, my addition. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, by the sweat and blood of man's labor, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, the sweat and blood of God's labor. Even we believed, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, the sweat and blood of God's labor, and not by the works of the law, by the sweat and blood of man's labor. For by the works of the law, the sweat and blood of man's labor, shall no flesh be justified. Yeah, just basic Christianity. This is how it works. The first cannot satisfy God. So what saves you? Where does your confidence lie? Is it in your own sweat and blood, the offering of your own making, your own life, your own recipe, or is it in his sweat and blood, his offering, his life given, his body broken, and the pouring out of his blood? See, what you have in the Old Testament is you have a mystery, but it needs an interpretation. It is a foreign tongue that without the interpretation actually has no value to us. What's the good of just, oh, so we can take a trivial pursuit question on, so which uh, offering did God accept? He accepted Abel's. And they go, ding, ding, ding. Like, uh, we get a pat on the back. So how did that change your life? You see, a lot of us have looked at the Old Testament as just story and moral uh, ideas. And it's like, oh, it's good. It's good to hear these stories. However, they only have value to the degree that they lead us somewhere. If they don't lead us to a second sound, they actually have no purpose whatsoever other than entertainment. The first and the second throughout the Bible. Cain, Abel. Ishmael, Isaac. Think about which one he accepts and which one he rejects. Esau, Jacob. He always accepts the second. And it's not because the second is that impressive in most of these cases. Amalek, Israel. Amalek are the descendants of Esau. It's known as the first nation. Israel. Leah, Rachel. Isn't that an irony? The second is the one that Jacob esteems. Manasseh, Ephraim, Joseph's two sons. When Jacob comes to bless them, Jacob puts his blessing hand on the second. And Joseph's like, no father. And Jacob's like, I know what I'm doing, son. God chooses the second. Saul, David. God rejects the first. The second one is a man after his own heart. Old covenant, new covenant. Adam, Jesus. This is the terrain of Scripture. It's good for us to take note of it. Is having the first sound sufficient? So what I'm doing within our body, and I know we have a lot of visitors today, which I thought was quite humorous when I finished up my message and I wasn't realizing that we had an advanced graduation. That's the good thing about 
how I do my study is I don't do it biased upon what's happening that weekend. I do it upon what I sense God's doing in our body. God's building us as a body. But to be built as a body, I feel like we need certain building blocks to reason from. We have certain ones that come from more charismatic Pentecostal backgrounds. We have those that come from the opposite. And both can easily feel threatened by the other. Like one can feel like there's a diminishment of the power of the Spirit in our midst because we are not freely flowing in tongues and interpretation of tongues here at Ellerslie. And then you have the others that would be very happy never flowing in anything like that. And in fact, even the notion of it coming up like this morning's message is threatening at a certain level. So what I want to do is I want to put some things out on the table for us to reason from. I'm not going to come up with just pat answers or like, this is how we're going to do it from here. I would actually like to submit that to our pastoral leadership. And I even invite us as a body to participate in this process. Is having the first sound sufficient? If you have the Old Testament sound and you reject the second sound found in the New Testament revelation, then what good is that first sound? What good was it to you? You're held accountable because you know that that's your Messiah, and yet they rejected him. In fact, they're responsible for killing him. Its whole purpose was to prepare you to receive the greater, more clear revelation and understanding. The same is true with the first sound given to the body of Christ. God is bringing us into a new kingdom, a holy foreign kingdom to our beings, but he supplies us upon our arrival in it, the Holy Spirit. Not to just bring us into this new territory, but to interpret this new language of heaven unto our souls in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do not hinder the first sound of the Spirit, but we also refuse to allow the first sound to rule in the church, as if it were the chief gift. You see, certain denominations will actually make the tongue, speaking in tongues, a very prominent thing, almost to the point where you would think that this is what the church is all about. And if you're really a Christian, you'd be speaking in tongues. Actually, if you're really a Christian you're going to be showcasing Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? You're going to be showing the second sound. Now, we could have a dispute of like, well, how could you get to the second if you skipped the first? However, here's the simple solution to that is to say, Jesus says, you will know my disciples by their love, not by the fact that they speak in tongues. That is not to be overlooked. It is the evidence of the second sound that actually determines a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do not miss that, Church of Jesus Christ, and do not miss the irony of the context in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 13. Love. The better way, you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if you do not have that love, that evidence of the second sound in your life, it is nothing. Point made. <laughs> For it is the second sound that builds the church into what it ought to be. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Where did that tongue come from? Well, for many of us, we actually might go, I'm not sure where that tongue came from. That tongue sounds just like that tongue over there, which was trained by this person here who has the same tongue. I'm not sure that's a real tongue. I know some of you have had that thought. So have I. However, it very well could be a real tongue. However, that tongue and its use within this body needs to be watchfully used. For its only value is if it would be interpreted. And so therefore, technically, its only value is in its interpretation, not in the tongue. Because a tongue edifies the individual, not the body. So its use here is technically only if it has some clarity, only if it's attached to a second sound. Would it have any value whatsoever in the church of Jesus Christ? By the way, that's the message of 1 Corinthians 14. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies, who speaks a clear message that builds up and establishes the body, edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Moses will call him the first sound. So Moses writes the book of Genesis. Extremely interesting book, especially when you have the key of Jesus to stick into it. Everything you see is a picture of Jesus. 
it's the generations of Adam. And then the New Testament starts out and says these are the generations of Jesus Christ. So you have the generations of Adam and you have the generations of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. It's the two sounds. And so as you're going through the terrain of Genesis, there's so many illustrations. I just chose one and I even lopped this down to you know, just the bare minimum. But the mysterious name of Joseph. In the Hebrew, it's Yosef. Yosef. So it's like the umpire, you know, as someone's coming into home plate, and he's like, you're safe! <laughs> it indicates a double etymology. I know, big word. Uh, etymology is the history of a word, the meaning of a word, where it's derived and where it comes from. But the interesting thing about Yosef is it's a very difficult word to determine and land on an actual meaning. And here it is, one of the most key characters. The Jews would say this is a picture of the Messiah. That's what they would say. And for those of us on the outside world, the Christians, you know, we, we see David as a picture of the Messiah. Hey, David. But Joseph isn't of the tribe of Judah. So we're like, eh, no, he can't be a picture of the Messiah. We're very limited in our understanding of how God uses his, his men and his, his characters throughout history. But it's a double etymology declaring two seemingly opposite things at once that Jehovah removes from a man and that he also adds unto a man. But with the key of Christ, this seeming contradictory name makes perfect sense in light of the gospel. You see, this name is a mystery. The story of Joseph is actually a mystery until you know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, suddenly you stick Jesus as a key into the lock of the story of Joseph. And what do you see? You see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's the idea of removal and adding. So when you take the name Yosef, it actually means stripped from, but it also means restored unto. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. How could it mean stripped from and then restored unto at the same time? Well, welcome to the mystery of the name of Joseph. It means taken from and added to. Huh? It's the idea of losing and yet gaining. Loss that leads to gain. How could if you lost something, could you gain? Now, follow me. This is a mystery. This is a hidden, unknown tongue. We see it in the Old Testament. It's the first sound. What's it begging? It's begging a second sound. Who is this man? Why is it that all was stripped from him? Why is it that such a godly man suffered? Why is it that all was stripped from him? Why did he have to go through that? Why? Why? It's a mystery. Until you understand the key. Loss that leads to gain. To die is gain. Death, it's the idea of exchanging out something bad for something good. Death exchanged out for life. That's usually the definition I'll give for Joseph if anyone asked me. It's death exchanged out for life. It's imprisonment exchanged out for freedom. In other words, you're receiving life in exchange for death. You give up your life and what are you receiving back? Life. Darkness exchanged out for light. You see, something that was dark is now replaced and it's, there's an exchange that takes place and now what remains is light. Yosef is, a, is merely a declaration of good news. He was emptied that we might be filled. He was crucified that he might rise anew. He was stripped of life that he might be born again. The gospel is woven into the etymology of a character in the Old Testament? Uh-huh. Yosef is a foreshadow of the second sound, the word of God made flesh. He was born of the second, Rachel. The loved, or the spirit. Flesh and spirit are the two sounds. And so as a result, he's born of the second. He's Yosef. He is the one who in his death will bring life. The he's the beloved of the father. Isn't it awkward when you read Genesis? You're like, Jacob, come on, buddy. Don't give that coat. Oh, no. You're showing way too much favoritism to him. He's also a picture of something. He's the favorite of the father. He's a very, he holds a very special place in Father God's heart. He's the beloved of the Father, clothed in the full rainbow, the coat of many colors. You know what the description of the throne room of grace? Whenever you see God seated on a throne, you know what he's surrounded by? A rainbow. A coat of many colors. You're going to also recognize that when he puts a robe of righteousness on us, what do you think its color scheme is? Well, it's the nature of God. So therefore, it's a coat of many colors. We are grafted into that favored position. It's an incredible thought. The better man. We all know that he's better than his brothers. And yet, 
He's, well, he's promised to rule preeminence, foretold every knee will bow. Remember the dreams that Joseph has? You see, there's a telling before it happens, it is spoken. Before it comes to pass, it is declared. So that when it happens, you will know that what he was given was from God. Born of Israel. In other words, he's the son of Jacob, whose name is also Israel. These are all a statement of Jesus Christ. Rejected of his brethren. It's an amazing thought to think that all the Jews rejected Jesus. And how could you? He's one of yours. He was literally of your lineage. He isn't just that. He's the Messiah. But come on, he's your kin. He's rejected of his brethren, stripped, betrayed for silver into the hands of sinners. You know who bartered for silver uh, out of the 12 sons? His name was Judah. If you read Josephus' antiquities on that point, you know how the Jews would refer to Judah? His name is Judas. Judah and Judas are the same name. We just don't use them that way. So when Josephus is describing, he sold Joseph. For 20 pieces of silver. Yes, it bothers me too that it was 20 pieces. I still have to check that. I was like, it has to be 30. What, 20? <laughs> but Judas sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. That's, that's amazing. Turned over to the evils of the world. Though tried, accused, mocked, and imprisoned, he is examined and found faultless. Everything that happened to Joseph is exactly what happened to your Messiah. From the lowest prison, he's exalted to the highest place. And he led captivity captive. Joseph is put in the lowest prison, and yet where is he exalted? He's exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. <laughs> Do we see it? Do you see it? The mystery is solved in Jesus Christ. Second only to Pharaoh and the most powerful nation on earth. A remedy. See, Joseph becomes a remedy. That which looks like futile suffering, meaningless torture. Why is the key question? When you stick the interpretation in, you realize that Joseph's sufferings were for the benefit of his brothers. God allowed one man to suffer that a nation, and not just one nation, but the nations of the earth could be rescued. This is God's interpretation of the life of Joseph. He's a remedy, an unexpected mercy for the nation of Israel, a savior able to supply the food that all need. He's a picture of forgiveness and grace. And every knee in Israel bows. All of his sons bow. But not just that. Every knee of every nation bows unto Joseph. An invitation to the land of Goshen. Come, brothers. Come to my land. To this rich territory and live with me. Invitation to the land of Goshen in the midst of an evil world marked by the destitutions of sin and famine. In the midst of Egypt, Joseph prepares a place. And he actually finds there's a refuge in Egypt under the rulership of Joseph for all of his kin to come. Even though they betrayed him, even though technically they killed him. That is an amazing picture. Unlocked through the key known as Jesus Christ. But without that key, all you have is a good story. You don't have anything that will change you and move you to the realities of the efficacy of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The master of dreams has come. One of the statements of who Joseph was is he's the master of dreams. In other words, he can take mystery and interpret it. That's what Joseph is. He takes mystery and interprets it. Well, uh, who are we talking about here? We're not just talking about a man in the Old Testament. We're talking about Jesus. He is the master of dreams. He takes the unknown tongue and interprets it and brings a prophecy. He is that prophecy. He's the fulfillment of all prophecy. It is in him, the person of Jesus Christ. So here we are at the communion table. It's Passover Eve. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Technically, it says that I am. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it does come to pass, you might believe. He's telling something beforehand. I will betrayed, be betrayed into the hands of sinners, but I will, and I will die, but I will be resurrected on the third day. Why are you telling us this ahead of time? So that when it does happen, you'd believe. What is the first sound doing? It's telling us beforehand. It's telling us before it happens. So that when it is interpreted, we would see the power of God in it. The mystery of Christ. He must suffer and die and then rise again. It is a great mystery, by the way. 
because the Jews couldn't figure that one out. He's supposed to defeat the Romans. He's supposed to trounce them under his feet, turn them to ash, the enemies of God. If this truly is the Messiah, then why is he silent? Why is he carrying a cross? Why is he stripped naked? Why is he humbled to the dust? Why is he a worm and no man? There's a mystery, and it is only solved in the resurrected Christ. He must suffer and die and then rise again. He is doing this to rescue his brethren. He is doing this to purchase his bride. And Joseph gave them provision for the way. Isn't that an incredible statement? This picture of the Messiah in the Old Testament makes, gives provision for the way, the way to get to Goshen. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. That means it's made clear. Manifest is the entire idea that we see, even in 1 Corinthians 14. It's the idea of the trumpet blast that is clear. The idea is manifest. It is distinguishable. It is understandable. And so it's been hid for ages and generations, but is now made clear. It is made revealed. It is understood finally by his saints. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The first sound is wonderful. See, this is a delicate issue because for those of you that are really examining every word that I'm speaking, trying to figure out nuance and leaning and how I'm coming out on this one, because I know this is a, this is a challenging message. It is not to decry and to diminish that first sound. For instance, if I'm going to liken the first sound to Moses and the Old Covenant, I'm a huge fan. But I'm not under law. In other words, I understand and distinguish the difference. There's a huge movement in Christianity today to come back under the Hebrew law, as if our righteousness is gained both by Christ's shed blood and in keeping the law. And I say, no way. Our righteousness is found in Christ alone. That must never be diminished in and amongst us as the saints of God. However, it's not to diminish that first sound, because what does that first sound do? It shows us Christ. You know that if you remove the Old Testament, you don't know for sure that Jesus is the Messiah. He could just be a good man. However, you understand the Old Testament, and now you know because it's said aforetime. It told us way before it happened that he would come, that he would do this, and he did it to the jot and tittle. Every last detail he fulfilled. He is supposed to be pierced. His clothing is supposed to be parted and divided, and they cast lots for it. I mean, every detail betrayed for 30 pieces, 30 pieces of silver. He has done it. He has pulled off the most impossible revelation. He is the key. It all points to him. The first sound is wonderful, but it's the second sound that edifies and makes strong. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant can't save you. However, it is God's word. It's wonderful, breathed by the Holy Spirit of God but it can't save you. It points to the one thing that can. It's the second sound that saves. The first sound, though it be given by God, cannot save. It's the second sound that we as the church of Jesus Christ crave. What is the good of the story of Joseph unless it leads us to better understand the person of Jesus Christ? The way we handle scripture is to see Jesus. The way I handle 1 Corinthians 14 when I start in is to say, Jesus, I want to know you better. I don't want to be afraid of the text of scripture because it makes me uncomfortable and I've seen the abuse of it. I want to see you. I want to know what you are speaking to the church of Jesus Christ. For these are living words. And though they were written 2,000 years ago to a very specific group in Corinth with very specific problems, I pray that by your spirit you would translate it to us here today that we may glorify you in the way we are a body. 1 Corinthians 14. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So, for those of you that lean towards the desire for spiritual gifts and are really desirous to have that topic come up more often and to see us cultivate that a little more freely in here, let me give you the exhortation of Paul. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, 
Let it be for the edification, which means the building up, the construction of the church that you seek to excel. May you be motivated by God's motivation for the church, not to just have some power tools, not to just have some cool things that you can show off and say, see, God's working in my life. If you are not doing it for God's reasons, you're not showing Jesus Christ. What did his life do? It built up the church. That is what the second sound does. It establishes the church. It builds it up. We want to participate with that. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So I'm so happy for you that you speak in a tongue. Praise God. But may you pray that you can actually bring clarity to the body and actually use that to edify. So it's wonderful that you speak in a tongue. However, that tongue is useless here. It is only beneficial to the degree that it makes sense, that it can be translated for us. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. It's the combination of the two. I could get up here and cry, but if then I sit back down and say, well, I did my work, uh, shouldn't they just know to be excused? You see, the trumpet was not clearly blown. As a result, you don't know what to do, so you sit awkwardly waiting for someone to dismiss you. And I'm thinking, shouldn't they have just read into the fact that I left the stage? Wasn't that clear enough? No, it wasn't. You see, Eric, you went up there and you just sort of gurgled a little. And we're not exactly sure what that meant. You see, it might be a movement of grace in my life and we can cherish that. But it's only when that which is going on inside of Eric comes out through interpretation that it begins to build us up. And it begins to make sense and it actually heartens the body to do. And I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. It's the combination of both. If what you have is the first sound and the first sound only, ask God for the understanding. Ask God that that which is stirring within you would actually have articulation to benefit and to bless and to build up others. How will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? So I could get up here and make some noise, right? And you could be impressed because it does sound like a real language. And yet it's hard for you to say, amen, brother, when you don't understand a word I'm saying. You see, an amen is an agreement of faith. And if you're ever going to give your amen to anything, make sure that it is true. And so how do you test the spirit of what's being said? How do you test the content of what's being said unless you can understand it? Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For if you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. Wow. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So if we're going to learn how to be the body of Christ... We crave the second sound. So if you speak in tongues and you're a big fan of it because it's really impacted your life, you crave the second sound. For those of you that have been confused about tongues, one thing I can say is the Spirit of God always leads to the second sound. He will always lead to the evidence of love in our life. If you are missing the basic attributes of the life of Christ as revealed in the New Testament, then I would heartily seek after God to say, God, is there something I'm missing? Am I in the faith? However, the criterion of it being tongues that reveals the fact that you have gone from death unto life is a dangerous one. Because the primary evidence in the New Testament, though I actually understand in the book of Acts where that comes from, I'm not ignorant of the fact that so many stories they believed and were baptized with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. Hey, I see it too. So it's not to diminish that. It's to make it very clear that Paul's entire argument is to a church that has the first sound but is unhealthy. So if you have the first sound, it doesn't mean you're healthy. So Paul is having to come and say, hey, well done with the first sound. Hey, how about we start moving on to the second? What is the conclusion then? That's the exact term Paul uses. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. I will function as a Christian both in the dreaming and the doing facets of the faith. I crave the clear sound that you will do a work, a mysterious work in my life that will be translated into a dying world and actually bring them Jesus.
recognizing that the mystery only has value when it is revealed in and through our lives, showcasing the life of Jesus Christ. The first sound, we could call it the joy, the peace, the exhilaration of forgiveness from sin, the wonder of freedom from sin. When you first come to the cross, that sound of jubilance in our soul is so amazing. But you're not supposed to stay there. You're supposed to crave the second sound, the sharing of this joy with others. You see, you have been changed. But what needs to take place is this needs to be converted into a second sound so that others would be edified by it. God is not just wanting to save you and give you a nice first sound. He's wanting to translate that into a second sound so that what comes out of your life, both in testimony and in behavior, is Jesus. The sharing of this joy with others, the passing along of this hope and peace, the teaching and impartation of this exhilarating wonder unto a lost and dying world. You know what book in the Bible this is? This is 1 Corinthians. This is the same book. And look what Paul says to this church, by the way, that speaks in tongues. Listen closely. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual people, but to as carnal. They're behaving as the first. That's what carnal means, fleshly. Flesh, spirit. These guys, though they have this gift of the spirit, are behaving, living as carnal, fleshly. So I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The ironies of this are off the charts. We split and divide over these very issues that we're talking about today. And are we not carnal? There is something God wants to speak to us. But until we lay aside our pettiness and start seeing Jesus, we can't hear it. Corinth indeed had the first sounds of new birth. But as long as they only had the first sounds, they were still functioning in their first behaviors. If we really are a loving body, we will seek to grow up under the second proofs birth. Let's crave the second sound. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com. E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E dot com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.